Our Father, as we come together this morning as a body of believers to worship you, we pray that we might put our focus, our attention, our concentration upon you, that during this time we'll think about who you are and what you have provided for us. First and foremost of all is our salvation through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. There he paid the sin penalty. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And, Father, we are thankful that in your word you have given us everything for life and godliness, that you have provided all that we need in order to learn how to think as you think and how to uh, evaluate our circumstances and the situations we face, that we might be able to think about them as you would have us to think about them and respond and react to these circumstances uh, on the basis of your word. And, Father, now as we come together to uh, worship you, we pray that all the distractions that we have each day, the worries and cares of our lives would be set aside, that we might be able to uh, have an unhindered focus on you uh, during this time, and that God the Holy Spirit would use this time uh, to uh, edify us spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we got started in the uh, prayer, a little bit of the prayer of Hezekiah, his response to the international intimidation as represented by the Assyrian threat. There are a lot of parallels. I'll go review those in a minute for those of you who may not have been here last week, but a lot of similarities between what the southern kingdom of Judah faced as a nation in that time and what uh, we in the United States face today. Uh, intimidation has always been a tool that uh, armies and uh, others uh, have used, armies, enemies, criminals, terrorists use in order to gain the upper hand in any kind of a uh, conflict or physical confrontation. Uh, this was especially true of the Assyrian Empire. They were uh, perhaps one of the cruelest of all nations in history. Their, their cruelty, the games they would play with their uh, prisoners of war, the way they would seek to see how long they could keep a victim alive uh, while they were skinning him. Uh, and uh, various other means of torture that they used in the contests that they had between the soldiers at the uh, expense of their victims were uh, well known in the ancient world. And this, of course, would breed fear into their enemies. And that was their uh, part of their psychological operation, sort of the er er early uh, ancient world's version of psyops. And their attempt was to so fill their enemies with fear and dread that they would win a large part of the battle before anything uh, physical ever occurred. They already were striking fear into the uh, hearts and the minds of their enemies because they realized that in any kind of a conflict, and whether we're talking about a military conflict, which is the focal point of this, of this episode, whether we're talking about the kinds of conflicts that we face in our modern world in terms of the uh, war on terrorism, or whether we're talking about just problems that you and I face in life that are part of a uh, spiritual conflict uh, that our lives are a part of, 
uh, whether we're talking about the micro-conflict or the macro-conflict, mental attitude is more than 50% of the, of the battle, that we need to keep our focus on where our strength actually lies and not get our focus on the problems, on our weaknesses, on the ways in which we could, uh, we could lose or on past uh, failures. We have to develop in life a tough mentality spiritually. And this is exhibited uh, by Hezekiah. It's exhibited again and again in scriptures. When you see the men of God, the prophets of the Old Testament up against impossible odds, when you read stories about about Abraham, you read stories about Moses, you read stories about Joshua, stories related to some of the judges. You read stories especially related to David and others who trusted God against overwhelming odds, realizing the principle that ultimately the battle is the Lord's, that while there may be things we can do at a physical human level, perhaps there are things we uh, are required to do or we ought to do on a physical level, ultimately that's not our focal point. That's not where our trust resides. Our trust resides in God who is the one who oversees, superintends uh, history under his, under his providential care. But this understanding of the importance of mental discipline, of mental focus, of, mental, of our mental attitude is clearly understood uh, in the field of battle. It's understood especially by terrorists. And that is exact, that's the goal of terrorists is to strike fear and terror into their enemies so that they begin to win the battle. When they are have so induced fear in their enemies that their enemies begin to change, change the way they live, uh, change the way they act, change the way they talk, uh, where they will modify uh, terms and phrases so that they're not offensive or might not create a reaction in the uh, among the terrorists among the enemy then they have already won a large part of the battle because their threats are are, are reaching their target and the uh, individuals are are taking note of that and they're showing that they are fr- truly afraid of them and so they are already beginning to uh, be intimidated and be beginning to to cower. This is just the modus operandi of any bully. A bully just is full of swagger, and he has a certain uh, measure of strength, and he begins to strike fear into the uh, thinking of his victim. And once he knows he he has the upper hand, then he can get that victim to do whatever uh, whatever he wants him to do. Uh, my dad clearly understood that. When I was a kid, we moved out into uh, out into a new, new house in Meyerland, and the next-door neighbor on one side was a real bully. He was about four or five years older than me, and I was about maybe uh, seven years old, maybe eight. And I had a friend down the street about maybe ten houses down, and yet this, this big kid next door, big, large kid, later played football, but he was a... Uh, he was a real bully, and he had beaten up a couple of kids in the neighborhood, and he would swagger around. And uh, so it got to the point where I didn't really like walking down the street and past his house down to visit my friend down the street, and his parents wouldn't even let him come down 
uh, to my house because of this kid next door. So my dad went out in the garage and cut 15 inches off the end of a broomstick and uh, smoothed everything down and painted it and drilled a hole in one end and put a thong through it so I could loop it around my wrist, taught me a little bit about how to use it and said, now, you know, don't walk around showing off that you've got this. Just hold it by your side, down by your thigh. And if he comes out and starts to threaten you, then uh, if you're, you get scared instead of running, you just, you know, poke him with it, hit him over the head, told me where to poke him with it and how to hit him over the head. That kid next door, once he realized I was carrying that stick, never bothered us again. And that's the kind of mentality that you have to have. It is you, you don't go at it swaggering or showing off that you've got, you've got power, but you do respond with strength and confidence, and you don't let the bully threaten and intimidate you. Now, Hezekiah is facing a bully in terms of the Assyrian Empire, a a bully that has great power and has already defeated a number of nations, as we'll see as we go through the passage. Uh, We as the United States of America, and in a broader sense, Western civilization, including uh, the Western Hemisphere as well as Western Europe, face the bully and the intimidation tactics of Islamic terrorists. And they have won a lot of battles in the PSYOPs war. They have gotten us to change uh, terminology. Uh, If you read the paper, I mentioned some of this last week, and I couldn't believe things that came up during the week in terms of the news. But if you are alert to what's been happening uh, this last week, one incident uh, relates to the Texas Department of Education and that there is a challenge to some of the things that are stated in textbooks in how Islam is described. Uh, soft, non-offensive words are used to describe the advances and the expansion of Islam uh, during the uh, 7th and 8th century that was just uh, the expansion of empire. Uh, there's no mention of their, how, how, they, um, how violent they were and how they uh, conquered uh, all, of the, all of North Africa, much of the Middle East, the, the way they uh, would torture and kill uh, Jews and Christians, uh, if they would not submit, which is the basic meaning of Islam, is to submit, if they would not submit to Allah. And so the, the language that describes the expansion of Islam and other things related to Islam is really toned down because we're so afraid we might, we might actually say something that offends them and create a, a reaction. And on the other hand, when you have descriptions about things that uh, that Israel has done or things that Christians have done historically, for example, the Crusades, which is everybody's bashing uh, post and because most people are totally ignorant of the Crusades, um, then they, they talk about how horrible and violent the Christians were and nobody's going to stand up and say anything. I mean, Christians are just a bunch of weenies. I mean, we, we hardly ever respond to anything like this. We just sort of... Uh, 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 hang our heads or we don't say anything, we're not uh, able to respond. Now, there are a few groups that do respond, and there are those who are challenging this, like I said before, the uh, State Department of Education. But as far as the Crusades go, we have to understand that when the Crusades began, the first Crusade, I mean, there, were some, there were a lot of weird things that happened in the Crusades, and I'm not endorsing 
uh, everything that happened in the Crusades or all of the Crusades. But in the First Crusade, the reason the First Crusade was called was because of Islamic aggression and violence against the eastern, what had been the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and as they were advancing towards uh, uh, Constantinople, the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, called upon the Pope in the West to raise an army to come to their aid and defense so that they could be uh, protected from the Islamic uh, hordes. And this Muslim aggression, as I said, began back in the early part of the 700s. And the Crusades were not an initiative action among Christians, by Christians against Islam. It was an act of defense by Western Europe against two previous centuries where the Muslim hordes had been killing and maiming and torturing and destroying and conquering various uh, countries that had been dominated by Christians. And, but you never hear that. You didn't hear that in any school you went to because it's safe to bash Christians. But gosh, we're scared to death of what uh, some Muslim terrorist might do. Nobody in this country has what it takes to stand up. This last week there was another episode related to a cartoonist by the name of Molly Norris up in Washington State. And back in the uh, spring sometime when there was some uh, uproar over a uh, court cartoon uh, that uh, on a television uh, cartoon that had uh, uh, was was making a little bit of a satire on Islam and Muhammad and the Muslims were again uh, raising their threats and scaring the uh, television network so that they wouldn't do this and trying to intimidate everybody. She said she had a pretty good idea. She said, you know, if we just had a cartoon day where we would invite anybody and everybody to, to draw cartoons of Muhammad, that if uh, enough people did that, then then they wouldn't be able to do anything. And they had like over 100 entries into this competition. It was a spoof competition, by the way. But the leaders of the peaceful religion of Islam decided that they needed to kill this woman. And so, you know, several imams called for her assassination. And you never heard the President of the United States stand up and say, that uh, how horrible this was and we were going to stand up and protect our citizens. You didn't even hear a local sheriff say that. You didn't hear a man. used to be men would stand up to protect women. This just shows how men have become just a bunch of wusses in our country, that they have no guts and they have no ability to stand up for anybody. No one stood up for this woman. And only in this last week, after it was revealed that the FBI had encouraged her to go into uh, some sort of uh, non-federally funded, by the way, witness protection identity change so that she's just completely disappeared from the face of the earth now and become another person, um, was it really reveal what had happened? And there are a few conservative pundits who have written columns about this, so we know what was going on. But even in the few news reports I saw, uh, they didn't, they were very careful not to make any kind of judgment. Uh, they just reported what had happened. They didn't talk about how terrible this was. And nobody spoke about how this reveals that the character of the leadership 
in this country has yielded to bullies and thugs. And once this happens, and this is happening again and again and again, you have instances uh, earlier this summer. There was a uh, journalist in England who wrote about the fact that Islam was a violent religion, and so to respond to that and prove them wrong, of course, a couple of imams in Egypt called for his uh, assassination. The, vi- the peaceful religion is, is going to kill somebody because they said they were violent. This goes on. We have lost our moral courage. We have lost our spiritual courage. When we lose our spiritual and moral compass in relation to eternal absolutes, then we can't identify correctly what the problem is, and we can't stand with the right solution. We become weak, and we become inferior. This was what I focused on some last, last week. Now, just by way of review, I want to make sure you understand this chart a little bit. What happens is whenever we get involved in any kind of uh, discussion politically, for example, we could even discuss what would be the right response to these kinds of intimidations and threats by, by terrorists. What, what should we do? Well, that's, that um, sort of takes place at this upper level of either political or national actions or individual actions. But as soon as we phrase the question in terms of what should we do, and if somebody were to say, well, we ought to do X, well, then the response would be, well, that's, that's, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that, or that's, that's right. That's a good idea. As soon as we start using words like ought and should, right and wrong, what we do is we bring... Uh, a value system into the discussion, and now we're talking about ethics. So we can debate the issue of whether something's right or wrong, but that involves something that usually never gets discussed, and that is a more basic issue of what uh, philosophers call epistemology, which is uh, the study of knowledge, or basically how you know what you know, how you know what is right, and how do you know what is wrong. What is your source of knowledge? If you're going to say, well, I disagree with that, that's wrong, well, why do you think that's wrong? What is your authority that you're going to that gives you a value system to make a decision that something is right or something is wrong? And that brings us to the most basic level, which is the level of what is called metaphysics or discussion about God, the nature of ultimate reality. Is there a God or not? Is there a creator who has spoken or is there just uh, empty silence out there uh, in the universe? So this is the basic issue uh, where reality exists. Everything comes out of these two basic levels. And unfortunately, most of the time we spend our time arguing at the, at the top, in the top box where we need to spend our, drive the discussion down into the, the bottom, bottom box. It's the pressures of life that force us to think about ultimate reality. And not just in terms of, of a debate or trying to make a decision on action, but when we get into pressure situations in life and the heat is turned up, it should force us to think a little more deeply and profoundly about what we believe and why we believe it, about our relationship to God and about how that informs our day-to-day actions and decisions. So it is out of that framework then that we come up with applications. And that's, that's really what, what I do as a pastor is I teach through the word as I try to think of the word about the passage, the episodes, the uh, instructions that are in the word within this kind of a, of a framework 
and then it is out of understanding what is a text, what does this imply about God? What does this indicate about what we should know from the scriptures and the values that come from that? And that then leads to uh, application. And so as I was thinking about this, we noted various uh, parallels last week with Hezekiah, that he faced an enemy that sought to destroy their nation, that that enemy was using a religious framework to challenge and intimidate the Jews, that Judah was not the aggressor, but rather they were the ones that were being attacked, and they weren't responsible for that attack, no matter what they might have done. No ma- it, it doesn't matter that Hezekiah quit playing the, paying the tribute. It wasn't right for him to start paying that tribute to, to uh, Sennacherib anyway. So just because he quit paying the tribute did, doesn't mean that uh, it was his fault that Sennacherib attacked, although there were probably those within Jerusalem who were blaming Hezekiah for this. If you'd just given him the tribute, if you hadn't uh, stopped paying the tribute, then this wouldn't be happening. You know, we have the same kind of uh, people in our country today uh, trying to blame uh, the President Bush or President Clinton or somebody uh, in the political sphere for the attack of 9-11. Now, just because we did things wrong doesn't justify an attack of that nature. Sure, we did things wrong. We did things right as well. But um, you can't blame the victim for the attack of the aggressor. And then fourth point, I pointed out that Assyria, on the basis of their pagan worldview, and their desire for world domination sought to dominate the gods of the other nations. There's always that religious component, even if it isn't obvious. In World War II, it was Shintoism for the Japanese, and there were strong occult and religious dimensions to the Nazi philosophy that dominated their thinking as well. These things are never, ever uh, empty of religious significance that drives everything. Metaphysics, whether you understand it or not, your view of God, whether it's uh, an atheistic view, a secular Gnostic view, whether it's or agnostic view, rather, or whether it is a personal infinite God, your view of God should drive everything, everything in life. Uh, in comparison... I pointed out that we also face an enemy that seeks to destroy our nation and that this enemy uses a religious rationale to intimidate us. It comes out of their view of Allah and that they are to complete bring the whole world into submission to Allah. That is the goal of Islam. Now, there are some for whom that's not a big priority, and so we call them moderate Muslims. But the most moderate Muslim I, see, I would put forth is probably more dedicated towards jihad than, uh, the, than many uh, nominal and liberal Christians. And by liberal Christians, I mean those who have been impacted by the Protestant liberal theology that, came, that developed in the 19th century. A uh, third thing we saw as a parallel is the U.S. and the West are not the aggressor in this fight, even though there have been many things that perhaps have been done within the framework of realpolitik and international uh, goals in order to keep maintain balance of power and other things like that that are factors. Nothing justifies the kind of attack 
or response that either the Palestinians are bringing against Israel or that uh, uh, the jihadists, the Islamists, are bringing against uh, the West. And Islam is a pagan worldview. Uh, it's a religion and legal system known as Sharia law. You can't separate them, and they seek to impose Sharia law uh, and to dominate the West. And they are making inroads every single year. Uh, they're making inroads. Uh, they've made tremendous inroads in Europe and in England, and that's just just watch what goes on there because that's the preview of coming attractions uh, for the United States because intellectually we have abdicated, we've eviscerated our uh, our intellectual way of thinking so that we no longer have absolutes by which we can stand against this incursion. When you adopt multiculturalism and the idea that all cultures are equally valid, all views of, of God and religion are equally valid, you've already abdicated a position of strength in this kind of a war because philosophically you can't think in terms of the reality of the enemy. And so again and again and again, we keep making the same mistakes. And, and the principle, there are tremendous principles here that come over into our understanding of the spiritual life because uh, we are in a war. The Bible again and again presents the, 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 the struggle of the Christian life in the, in the framework of a war because we trace it back to uh, before the creation when uh, one of the angels named Lucifer rebelled against God and led a third of the angels in uh, rebellion against him. These are referred to as fallen angels or demons. And that it is within that angelic conflict, that angelic warfare, that human history began as a way of bringing resolution to that conflict because it was in and through human history that God would demonstrate his justice and his righteousness and that his justice and righteousness were not incompatible with his grace, his compassion, and his mercy. And one of the most uh, significant books for understanding this is the Old Testament book of Job, where Satan comes before God and says, well, have you considered uh, Job? Or, or God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job down here? Um, and Satan says, yes, but the only reason he worships you is because you've given him everything. God said, well, let's put that to the test. You can go take away certain things, but you can't take his life or touch his health. And so Satan went down, and and uh, Job's children were killed in a, in a storm, and he lost his cattle, he lost his sheep, he lost his wealth, and yet he refused to turn against God. Uh, that is how the the this conflict is resolved is through the Evidence given through those who are loyal to God and who trust him in the midst of that conflict. But then when we get into the New Testament, we're told in Ephesians 10 that we are in this warfare. It's an invisible warfare. Our battle, our war is not against uh, flesh and blood. It is against the principalities and the powers, and it is against the authorities in heaven. It's, it's a spiritual conflict. That's where the battle rages, and that in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, we're told to take every thought captive for Christ. That's the battle. It's a battle that rages between our ears, not a physical battle. But the issues are the same. There are so many parallels that we can't let the enemy, the world system, or Satan 
uh, intimidate us. We can't let the world system or Satan put us in a position where we are on the defensive in the sense that we are running or in retreat. Um, we are to stand firm on the basis of God's word and rely upon God to be the one to protect us and to to defend us. So when we understand that as believers, we understand that that we we are in this warfare, and we have to we are just as much in a position of siege as Hezekiah was in Second Corinthians 19. So there's multiple applications of what we learn in Second in Second Kings 19. Applications in relation to a, uh, a similar national situation and applications related to our own individual spiritual life within the framework of the angelic conflict. So uh, there's a lot of ways in which we uh, can address these things. Last time I pointed out a key passage in Jeremiah 17, uh, 5 through 8, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Because the ultimate issues are spiritual and the ultimate war is a spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict, ultimately our trust, our confidence, our reliance needs to be on God. Whether that involves a national confrontation with an enemy or whether that involves personal challenges in each of our lives, we need to put our focus on God. When you're facing challenges with a difficult employer, when you're facing the potential of unemployment, when you're facing uh, a, a, an economy that is uh, negative to whatever it is that you're involved in in business or your livelihood, that's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate issue for you as an individual believer is are you trusting in your job to sustain you or are you trusting in God to sustain you? And so the issue here is uh, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And this is in contrast to the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. We can apply this politically. Our, we, we have a political system. We have political leaders. We have elections. We are to be involved in the process as citizens of this country because that is the law of the land. Every citizen of this country is responsible to be involved to some degree and to vote. That's our responsibility. We have a, an election coming up in a little over a month, and it is our responsibility as believers to be involved in that. But it's easy for us to get carried away and to think that, that the political sphere is the sphere of ultimate hope and reality, and it's not. Because again and again we are, we demonstrate that no matter which party is in power, no matter which person is in power, that there are always flaws and failures and inadequacies. We dare not put our hope in man. We have to keep our focus on God. We live in a time in the history of this nation when I believe we are uh, in a uh, decline. I think we've seen this, going back to what I was mentioning earlier in terms of our response to terrorism. We have demonstrated in our response to these situations a moral cowardice and a spiritual cowardice. We've demonstrated that we are basically led uh, led by wimps 
And those who do not have the moral or spiritual courage to take the stands, they ought to stand. This is true in military, I believe, in some areas. It's true in politics and governments, true in the news media. I, uh, we just don't see people coming out and taking the kinds of stands that they should, they should. Why? Because they're afraid they might lose their comfort. They might lose their, their, their sense of security in this nation. So we, uh, we easily allow our, 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 our security to truly erode. This was pointed out in the late 70s uh, by Francis Schaeffer in the series that he did on, on how should we then live. Very, very clearly, he, I remember him speaking in Dallas, Texas, and he said in the next 50 years, the, the West is going to abdicate its position of leadership and the real basis for the prosperity that we have because as our security is threatened and our sense of meaning and purpose and our wealth is threatened, we're going to gradually give away our freedoms and give up our, our liberties in order to have, maintain the facade of still having uh, strength and power and prosperity. And his words have been, um, have been very true. There's another uh, famous uh, response to this question on the decline of civilizations that was, has been uh, mentioned many, many times in different circumstances. It's attributed, I've seen, to at least three different people but none of those people uh, has, have they been able to prove are the actual source of this quote. So I'm not going to attribute it to anyone, uh, but it is nevertheless reflects a true uh, historical observation, and this is called the uh, cycles of civilization. Man begins his existence in bondage and rises from bondage through spiritual faith. From spiritual faith, he derives courage. From courage, the ability to gain his liberty. From liberty, now having true liberty, he is able to have abundance, prosperity. From liberty to abundance. But once abundance sets in and the comfort of abundance uh, begins to set in, then there is a shift to self-absorption. From abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back into bondage. We are somewhere in those last three lines in terms of Western civilization. We have become complacent and apathetic with regard to the eternal values of life. And as a result, we no longer have anything on which to base our living. So we're willing to give up. And we'll give up just a little here and a little next year and a little more the next year. But over a period of 15, 20, 30, 40 years, we'll look back and we'll see how much we've given up just to maintain the facade of security and prosperity. And by then it's too late because we'll either be in dependency or in bondage. That cycle is seen in many different ways in many different civilizations. Israel broke that cycle here. The only way to break it is to go back to uh, bondage to spiritual faith back at, up at the beginning, and this happened through this crisis. Hezekiah had led the nation to a return to God uh, earlier in his 
uh, reign, and now at this time he's going to refocus them on God. We're told in passages such as Second Chronicles 31, 20, and 21, and Second Kings 18, 5, that he was the greatest king spiritually that the southern kingdom had. He's, in terms of all of Israel, he's second only, only to David. And it is really seen in this whole episode. Now, as he's faced with this challenge and with the intimidation techniques of the Rabshaka, uh, he, he goes to God in prayer in 2 Kings 19.1. He tears his clothes, covers himself with sackcloth, and goes into the house of the Lord. The principle is that the source of our strength is God. It is not in the military, but that doesn't mean you tell the military to go home. It's not in finances, gold or silver, but that doesn't mean you just give away all your wealth. Those things are part of the means by which that God will use sometimes, not always, but sometimes, not in this situation, uh, but in other situations that God will use to bring about uh, his victory. But here the key principle is humility. Submission to the authority of God, and this is exhibited by his tearing his clothes, covering himself with sackcloth, going into the temple. Then he sends uh, three messengers here, or several messengers, Eliakim, who's the head of the household, Shavna the scribe, and elders of the priests, to Isaiah the prophet to seek divine guidance and God's answer. And so they're going to call upon uh Isaiah basically to pray. Now, the prayer isn't given here. It is assumed because what Isaiah gives them is an answer. So Hezekiah goes into the temple to call upon God, but we have not been revealed, or it has not been revealed to us the essence of that prayer in verse 1. But he prays, and then he says he uh, sends them to, uh, to Isaiah. And uh, he, he, the basic message is given uh, in verse 3. Uh, thus says Hezekiah, this is what they are to say to uh, Isaiah. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. Now that word blasphemy is an important word because that shows us that the focus isn't on the single dimension of the physical reality of battle. Blasphemy brings in the religious dimension, if you will. It brings God into the picture, that he's not just looking at this battle from the physical dimension, but he rep- recognizes that the ultimate issue in this battle is a spiritual issue and the glory of God. And here's the important principle. Every conflict we face in life, every challenge we face in life, every time you're tempted to give up, every time you're tempted to uh, compromise, every time you're tempted to cave into anger or worry or frustration or defeatism, uh, it is a spiritual issue. And the battle has to be won at the spiritual level in terms of your relationship to God not at the physical level. The, you, you, you may have your circumstances change. You may lose that job. You may lose that friend. You may lose a health battle. But the issue is your mental attitude focus, uh, focus on God. He recognizes that the issues are ultimately related to the integrity of God and his honor. This is the same thing that we saw with David and Goliath. When David, uh, who's young, 17, 18 years of age, he hasn't been allowed to join the army of Saul, and he's still kept at home, 
his father Jesse's keeping him at home to take care of the take care of the flocks. And he sends Jesse to take lunch, take some food to his brothers who are in the army. And for several weeks now, Goliath's been coming out to the middle of the Valley of Elah and trumpeting his challenge to Israel to send out somebody to fight me. Whoever wins, uh, who, if he can defeat me, then the Philistines are defeated and they'll go home. And every day he's coming out and he's uh, saying, okay, trust in your God to deliver you. But day after day, nobody goes out. And then one day, David's there bringing supplies to his brothers, and uh, Goliath comes out, utters his challenge, and David turns and looks at his brothers and says, says, who's allowing this guy to blaspheme the living God? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? And when he uses that word uncircumcised, remember circumcision was the sign of the of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise God gave that this land was their land. God would give this land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to the Philistines. David immediately interprets the battle within a the broader and correct spiritual framework that this guy's not got no ground to stand on. God gave us the, the land. We didn't win it uh, by conquest, even though there was a conquest, ultimately it was God who gave them the land. And so God's going to give us victory over this uncircumcised Philistine. He interprets the issues spiritually within a correct spiritual or divine viewpoint framework, not in terms of just this simple uh, two-dimensional or three-dimensional physical reality. So uh, Hezekiah goes on to say, um, verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. Again, that focus is it's God's honor and integrity that's the real issue here. And, and the word for reproach here is the Hebrew word haraf, meaning to reproach, to blaspheme, to defy, uh, and ultimately to taunt, to mock, or insult. So he's viewing this, this guy's coming out here to insult God. This is the issue. The issue isn't our inability to defend Jerusalem. The issue is, is God going to defend his honor when he is being mocked and insulted uh, like this? He also recognizes uh, the character of God in the issue. This is the living God. It's not some idol of stone or metal or wood, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who delivered us from the uh, slavery in Egypt. He is the God who gave us the victory and the conquest of the land. He is the living God. He is eternal. He uh, never dies as opposed to all these false gods. So our God is better than their God. Their God is nothing. Our God is the real God. Our God is the only God, the unique God of the universe. And uh, when they come out to rebuke the living God, um, if God hears, then maybe he will come to our defense. And he goes on to say he will, he has, the king of Assyria sent him to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. And this word for rebuke means to uh, decide or judge, to demonstrate something. It has a legal sense uh, to it. So this shows that Rob Shock has come out here and presented this legal argument against the ability of the God of the universe to protect and defend uh, Jerusalem, the city upon which he has set his heart. So 
Uh, the issue is ultimately the, an issue related to God's honor and God's, um, God's integrity. And we see the answer given by Isaiah when they come and they present this to Isaiah. Isaiah responds by saying, Thus you shall say to your master, God's already answered the prayer, and here's the answer. Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. And this is important to recognize because when you put your faith and hope in the living God who reigns over the affairs of men, then there is no basis for fear. Fear is replaced by confidence rather than being intimidated by the Assyrians, rather than being intimidated by Al-Qaeda or Islam, we should have confidence because we know that the ultimate reality is that their God is not real, their belief system is fake and phony, and our belief system is true and right because it is grounded upon the living God. But we don't have a civilization anymore that believes in the living God. They don't believe in anything. And when you are going to prop yourself up with nothing, you will fall a long way before you hit bottom because you can't lean on thin air. And that is all that we have left. We have eroded the basis of our culture by the consistent attacks against uh, God and against the entire Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. But the... Scripture says that we are not to be afraid. We are to have uh, confidence in God. Do not, Isaiah says, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have uh, blasphemed me. And so we have various passages that we can be reminded of in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 15.1, uh, the Lord came to Abraham as Abraham is dealing with a a conflict, a problem with uh, he had just defeated the enemies that had invaded uh, from Mesopotamia and gone through the land, and he's uh, conquered them or defeated them. And God reminds him, says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. The God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob, is still our shield, and we need to uh, uh, trust in him and rely on his protection. Deuteronomy 3, Moses reminds uh, the Israelites that as they go into the land, uh, which they are to uh, conquer by uh, military conquest and defeat the Canaanites, he says to them, you must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Now, there's an application there for us, and that is that in the battles we face, it is the Lord who fights for us. How does he do that? He does that. Uh, in a sovereign sense through his providence, but he does it in a personal sense through uh, the word that he gives us, the promises that he gives us that we rely upon and that we trust in when we are, uh, when we are in the battle. Uh, in Deuteronomy 31.8, again, Moses reminded them, the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. It's a lot like Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10, which is a verse I often quote, a verse many of you have memorized, is just a reiteration of what Moses said back in Deuteronomy 31, uh, verse 8. Then as they go into the land, 
uh, the Lord told Moses, I mean, told Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, ultimately you trust God for the victory, but that is not at the expense of the secondary means. So we trust God to protect us as a nation, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a strong military, that we don't have a strong border guard, that we don't have a strong defense in terms of law enforcement against criminal elements. You have to do both. But you can't forget God and just trust in politics, military, law enforcement, because that's no protection if God's not the ultimate source of our confidence. We can trust in God, but if we don't have an army, we don't have a strong border guard, we don't have a strong uh, law enforcement, then we're, we've really gone into some kind of crazy mysticism. You have to have both. God works in terms of guaranteeing and providing the ends, and he also works through certain uh, means. Another promise, Joshua 10.25, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. You go against the enemy, you have courage because it comes from something greater than you, not just some kind of psychological self-help mumbo-jumbo, but because there's a reality in the existence of God. Uh, other passages, Judges 6.10, God said, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites uh, in whose land you dwell. Psalm 27.3, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may be against me in this, that is, in God, I will be confident. Psalm 112.7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. My heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. I'm not going to yield to propaganda. I'm not going to yield to the threats of, uh, uh, of Islamists who threaten to blow things up and to kill people and send assassination squads. You can't have the kind of moral courage it takes to defend yourself against an enemy like this if there's not spiritual strength and courage at the core. And when that is gone, then there's just what's left is implosion. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Great promise to memorize. Isaiah 41.10, uh, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yea, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. number of other passages, Isaiah 41.13, fear not, God says, I will help you. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, go, going on, let's just uh, think in terms of applications. How should Christians respond to Muslim assaults? Well, I think, first of all, we have to always think in terms of a biblical worldview. That is the way things actually truly are. There is a God in heaven. He created angels. There was a rebellion among the angels. Uh, that is the introduction of evil into the universe, and that Satan is trying to secure ultimate, uh, ultimate authority and domain over the earth. He already has uh, a, a temporary dominion over the earth. He's called the prince of the power of the air, and he's called the ruler of this age but he has to defeat God to gain that ultimate victory. So we're in this warfare. He, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The strategies, actually, that's what the old English word wiles is, the strategies and the tactics of the devil. 
You stand against them not be, not on the basis ultimately of technology or finances or any of these other things, but because uh, you have the spiritual strength from the armor of God. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ultimately, the battle is not against Islam. The battle is against what inspires Islam, which is Satan. Ultimately, all false systems of thought get their inspiration out of satanic thought. So we have to recognize, uh, number two, that conflicts on the earth reflect Satan's strategy of world domination through false religions and false philosophies. There's a story, I don't know how true it is, but there is a story from the early 1700s that uh, Frederick the Great, who was greatly influenced by the Enlightenment, and thus he was a uh, rationalist and a skeptic about Christianity, that one day he turned to his chaplain and said, can you give me in just a word uh, an argument for the truth of the Bible? Why should I trust in the Bible? And his chaplain looked at him and he said, I've got one word for you, Israel the Jews, because the Jews are still in existence. God has a plan for Israel. God made these promises to Abraham in the Old Testament, and these promises he is bound to fulfill eventually. And all of these other nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Edomites, all of these other ancient uh, civilizations, the Sumerians, are all gone. They've been assimilated into other ethnic groups and other nations. But the Jews march on. Israel is back in existence today. The ultimate reality in life is the plan of God, and that, as I've said again and again, ultimately centers on Israel and ultimately centers on Jerusalem. There is no, it is no accident that the basic issue that people think churns up all these world conflicts today has to do with the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. They're thinking about it in a wrong way. The reality is that God has a plan for Israel, and Satan wants to prevent that plan. So he is the author of persecution of the Jews. He's the author, ultimately, of all of the uh, horrible attacks of anti-Semitism that have occurred down through the last uh, several thousand years, going back even into... Uh, into the ancient world because he wants to destroy the people that God has chosen for himself. And if he can destroy them before God fulfills his promises, then he wins. So conflicts on the earth always have to be thought of in terms of this ultimate spiritual reality. As Christians, our prime directive is to present the gospel. Our prime directive is not to destroy Islam or to kill all the Muslims. Our, our directive is not to burn the Quran. Our directive is to present the gospel to everyone. Tension comes, though, for us when the spiritual warfare erupts. That's spelled correctly with an I. That means it, it inserts itself into something. It explodes into something. That when spiritual warfare of the heavenlies erupts as international tension, war, or criminality, when Christians are called up into the army to go fight against Islamic terrorism and to fight in Iraq or fight in Afghanistan, you have two missions as an individual. 
One is to kill the enemy. That is your mission as a soldier, as a member of the United States Armed Forces, that you should carry out uh, to the best of your ability to glorify God. But you have a second mission as well, that is a mission given by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to uh, give the gospel, to love your enemies as God has loved you. And so those are not to be seen as a conflict, but as as mutually supportive. So at the one hand, you may be involved in a conflict in military, and at the other hand, demonstrating the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in one sense, in one circumstance, we love the enemy by killing the enemy. In another set of circumstances, we love the enemy by giving them the gospel. And so that is the tension. Uh, Loving your enemy and killing your enemy means that you are protecting others who might be killed by the enemy. You're protecting your family. You're protecting the security of your nation. You're protecting your buddies who you are also fighting with. By loving your enemy and not killing them so you have the opportunity to give them the gospel is also going to be circumstantially nuanced by uh, the way things are turning out on the ground. So it may go one way one day and another way another day. When it comes to our response to uh, Islam, we have a tendency, I think, motivated by the sin nature, to react in terms of personal animosity. That is wrong. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right. Somewhere along the line, some people, I think, have forgotten that principle. Uh, when you have people who want to uh, burn the Quran or to deface mosques or to get involved in uh, various uh, uh, activities of, uh, of violence against uh, it, uh, uh, against Muslims, then that's wrong. Uh, of course, the other thing that's wrong is what we get in the news media today. You get this, uh, you get these statements that oh, there's this rising tide of Islamophobia in the U.S. Oh, it's terrible. Everybody's becoming so anti-Islam. That is such a perversion of the truth. It's it's unbelievable. There are six times as many anti-Semitic attacks in the United States as there are anti-Muslim attacks in the U.S. Uh, Anything from painting swastikas on synagogues to other acts against Jews. Six times as many. We don't think there's a rising tide of anti-Semitism in the U.S., but, oh, you know, we've got... We've got a few incidents of something negative happening towards Muslims, and we've got this rising tide. That, again, is an example of how, in terms of our moral cowardice, we are already uh, responding uh, to, to the intimidation of terrorism in the wrong way and showing that we've already, uh, we've already uh, given up. Uh, it was another horrible response we saw last week. Let me go back to that chart. Oh, the, so you have the two wrong responses, either personal animosity on the other side, placating the enemy as a result of intimidation. One example of that placating came from the Massachusetts Bible Society called Mass Bible last week. They said, as people of the book, we are joined to Islam and Judaism in a special way, and as an organization that has sought to put that book into people's hands for 201 years, we cannot stand idly by while the sacred text of a sister religion. Islam is not a sister religion. Allah is not another version of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Allah wants is the God of Abraham and Ishmael, supposedly, and Allah wants to kill all the Jews and all the Christians. not the same God at all. Uh, but they're, they, they are already, um, 
compromising themselves uh, at this point. It's not a sacred text. It's not a sister religion. And uh, so they're operating on a wrong response. And the second paragraph, lest Muslim culture believe that the Reverend Jones' position represents that of all Christians, Mass Bible is prepared to take a counteraction. For two centuries, we've given the Bible to those without access. In response to the Reverend Jones' despicable act, we're prepared to give away two Korans for every one that the Reverend Jones burns. That's placating the enemy. That is responding. You've already, you've, when we have people responding like this, they've already said, we, you win, we lose. We'll give up. We don't want to do anything that might, that you might use as a justification for violence. Let me tell you folks, Islamists will take anything or nothing as a pretext for violence. Whether we're going to burn Korans or whether we're not going to burn Korans is not the issue. They'll do, they'll take anything as an excuse. And when we let them threaten to take an action and call, and that causes the kind of uproar we saw last week. I watched on one morning talk show last week, I watched, um, several pundits, uh, talk about and, and work themselves into a lather about how President Obama should have ex- uh, issued an executive order to stop this Pastor Jones in Florida from burning the Korans in violation of the Constitution. And, they, and the question was, well, if that violates, even if that violates the Constitution, yeah, the end justifies the means. We just have to stop it. If it could cost, if his actions would cost one more life on the battlefield, then, then we've got to violate the Constitution in order to, in order to protect our troops on the ground. That's cowardice of the most base kind. So, uh, mass Bible uh, exemplifies all of these kinds of problems. But that is because they've lost their faith in the living God. And so Isaiah tells us where the source of strength is. The source of strength is in God who solves problems. So we're not to be afraid of the words which you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria blaspheme me. God went on to say, verse 7, Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. God rules in human affairs. He may not always solve the problems through some sort of direct interference, as he did here, through some sort of miraculous supernatural intervention, but God is the one who always protects us. And if we have removed him from being the foundation and the support of our thinking, then we have nothing to rely on but ourselves, and that is nothing to rely on. Let's bow our heads together, close our eyes, and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word, to see how the principles in your word impact how we think and what we do today. Uh, It impacts us in terms of how we think about national and international events, as well as the challenges we face uh, personally and individually, that we dare not be intimidated We dare not allow the details of life, the uh, threats of life, whether it's on a personal level or an international level, to cause us to be afraid, to cause us to uh, doubt you, to not trust you. The ultimate issue in life is trusting, trusting in you no matter what may come. As those three young men said to Nebuchadnezzar, that even though you slay us, yet we will trust in him. 
Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to put their trust in the only hope for the human race, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would trust in him, for he alone is a source of salvation. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the lessons we've learned today from your word and that it would be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us spiritually, strengthen us morally, and give us greater insight as we come to understand the things that go on in our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.